0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hi, it's Dave Musgrave, editor of BBC History magazine, here once again to introduce you to our latest podcast. I'm joined by the deputy editor Sue Wingrove and section editor Rob Attar. This podcast accompanies the May issue of the magazine, which goes on sale in the UK on Tuesday the 29th of April. Our main feature is on Jack the Ripper, and we'll be hearing from the curator of a new exhibition about the nefarious Victorian serial killer shortly. We've also got a chat with a historian who is living on a 19th century farm, and we've invited Professor Paul Cartledge into our time machine this month. Plus, we'll be talking through the latest history book releases. But first, Rob attar has been talking to Alex Werner about Jack the Ripper.
2: Jack the Ripper is a character that continues to fascinate people even today. Why do you think that is?
3: For a variety of reasons. I mean, I think it's a pretty amazing story. <laughs> just you know, if you just had it, as I say, someone wrote a novel with all these, all these different elements, I and mean, it's an incredible story in terms of a brutal killer on the loose in an urban setting, killer who is not caught set against the backdrop of the world's largest city at the period. I mean I think it's it's a very, very exciting story. It's also a slightly unsettling story, so there's a degree of fascination I think, Um, and it's a story that is known throughout the world.
2: And obviously he famously was never captured. Do you think we'll ever find out who did it conclusively?
3: I think it's very unlikely that we'll find out who Jack the Ripper was. There have been so many different theories over the years and all of them, um, for one reason or another, there are reasons why we can discount them. I think with the the benefit of hindsight, having looked at a lot of the evidence, having read lots and lots of books on the subject, I'm still unconvinced that uh, we know who Jack the Ripper was. I think it will, will go on for quite a long time. I don't think it means that... We can say this story is closed or we've we've finished with the investigation, but I think it's um, it's very unlikely that a character will come forward that we can definitely attribute the crimes to.
2: And coming back to the exhibition itself, what prompted the museum to put on such an exhibition?
3: The location of the exhibition at the Museum and Docklands, the mu- Museum in Docklands, uh, when the exhibition opens, will have been open itself for about five years. And uh, this is a museum that looks very much at the history of the eastern side of London. And Jack the Ripper is a subject that a lot of our visitors, when they come to the museum, both the Museum in Docklands and the Museum of London, they often ask, you know, have we got a display on Jack the Ripper? So really it is meeting a bit the public demand for exhibition that looks at Jack the Ripper and an exhibition where the public for the first time will have access to a lot of the original surviving archival material.
2: Coming on to that, what are some of the key exhibits in the exhibition?
3: Well they range from things from our own collection which are more contextual type material which uh, we have obviously very strong, Museum of London has very strong collections relating to the Victorian period and against These kinds of exhibit, think of something like the very famous Booth map of poverty. Um, The museum has what we call the master map, which is the map that Charles Booth and his helpers would return to every night and colour in the streets, plot the social condition of London at the time. It's actually being carried out at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders in 1888. Um, So exhibits like that, and we're placing that alongside some of the police files that were created that detail the murders, descriptions of the victims, some of the case notes of the detectives, and also some of the letters that were sent in to the press and to the police at the time.
2: Jack the Ripper is quite a lurid subject, and there's quite a lot of people have a morbid fascination with it. Did you find it difficult to keep the exhibition quite tasteful?
3: Well, being a, being a museum, we obviously have to take a slightly different line from... A wax works, or a... so we, you know, we are trying to do a serious take on this subject. Right at the beginning of the exhibition, we actually have borrowed a number of items from Madame Tussauds. And they're not things to do with Jack the Ripper, but they're the things that were on display in the Chamber of Horrors at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. I mean, the wax works is integral to the Jack the Ripper story in that there were already displays along Whitechapel High Street and almost days after the the murders. Now, the museum is putting on a, a serious take on the subject, We're trying to give people a perspective of what life was like in the 1880s. For instance, as the murders unfold, we actually give the sense of those murders as they are reported in the press of the period. And some of the newspaper reports were quite matter-of-fact. They were sort of reporting the coroner's inquests. And then other papers were actually going much, much more lurid in their detail. Some of the radical newspapers, such as the new evening paper called The Star, which rapidly became the best-selling evening paper in the world by the late 1880s. So we're giving people a sense of the almost moral panic that uh, ensued by the autumn of 1888. So it's those kinds of things that we're drawing in, giving people a better understanding, I think, of the different factors of the East End at the period, the poverty of the people living in that area, the kind of things that, you know, the working environment, the police, the press giving you as you go around the exhibition some of the background.
2: So you're looking at a much wider picture than just the murders and Jack the Ripper himself?
3: Yeah I mean the title of the exhibition is Jack the Ripper and the East End so the East End is as much the central theme of the exhibition as uh, Jack the Ripper. Coming on to Jack the Ripper himself we have a big what we call a sort of timeline wall which actually plots all the different suspects over time because there have been a lot of different people who've been thought to be Jack the Ripper and that's quite interesting. You can see that at certain times um, over the years there are certain moments when, you know, say conspiracy was very popular so you might, you know, get a a royal candidate or some kind of Masonic element entering into the, the argument. At other times, you might get, you know, particular, say, closer to the time of the Jack the Ripper murders themselves, uh, an interest in focusing on people who were immigrants or new arrivals to to London. A lot of people felt that, you know, the murders were so ghastly they couldn't have been committed by a local.
2: And the East End itself, you talk about quite a lot in the exhibition. What kind of a place was it in 1888?
3: I mean, again, you have to be quite careful about that sort of dropping into a stereotypical sort of description of the East End, you know, poverty, terrible conditions, slum. Some areas were quite respectable and the main thoroughfares had big shops and there were wealthy shopkeepers living alongside terrible poverty. I mean, I think the, the word that Arthur Morrison, in a quite a famous short story he writes, I think it's called The Street, he talks about the monotony of life in the East End. And I think there are different East Ends. There are there's the East End of Whitechapel and Spitalfields, and then there's the East End that stretches out further east towards the River Lee, where you get rows and rows of terraced houses. And that, that sort of monotony, I think, is another element of the East End. People plodding off to to work long hours, maybe in the docks at the Riverside factories and sweatshops, coming back home with little money, um, very, very grim hand-to-mouth existence. I think that's very much a feature of the East End at the period. It was also a centre of crime, especially the inner city area just outside the City of London. I think that is true that there were areas, and we know from the police records of the period, where the police were very frightened of going down some of the alleyways. They would go, only go down them in pairs because they could easily be threatened by the local population.
2: And no doubt Jack the Ripper's murders made the reputation of the East End even worse.
3: Um, It's impossible, actually, to think of the East End without putting to mind Jack the Ripper. You know, the cobbled streets, the gas lights, the whole sort of vision that, that conjures up, which we've really got from, I think, film above all. Probably, you know, Sherlock Holmes as well creeps in there. Also, Dr. Jeff and Mr. Hyde. Sort of wrapped up in this sort of imaginative sort of element that goes with the East End now, and it's very very difficult to unpick that. You know, at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, there wasn't any fog. We've been influenced so much by that sort of picture of the East End that it's very very difficult to get back to the realities of what what life was actually like. And there were obviously very there were lots of different realities that you could come across in, in the East End. In the in the exhibition, we have some um, fascinating uh, photographs, um, some of the images of these scenes of poverty, um, street, street abs, ch- children with no shoes, families looking very, very distraught with very ragged clothing. And then there are a number of images showing a, a woman's night refuge, which are very startling images. I mean, the women's faces are incredibly powerful in those images.
2: Really, this exhibition should appeal to anybody who's interested in the history of London.
3: I think it's got that element. I mean, the East End at this period, it's a, it's a really, really critical period in London's history. I mean, I think if you didn't have Jack the Ripper and you were thought about the East End at this period, you've got things like the Match girls Strike of 1888, the Great Dock Strike of 1889. You've got the period of 1886-87, the virtual starvation in the East End and the marches through the streets of London, ending up in the riots in Trafalgar Square. You've got a mansion house fund that's set up to actually give out food in the East End in 1886-87. So it's quite, a, it's quite an important moment in London's history. And then you've got the booth map of poverty that actually, for the first time, maps poverty in a detailed way in London. And, you know, from that map, I mean, there are other things that sort of move things forward, but from that map you get, for instance, the 20th century Um, you get old age pension coming in, you get um, the clearance of some of the slum districts of London and the introduction of what we would call probably social housing today. So it is a moment of change, an important moment of change. And some people have argued, some people argued even at the time, people like George Bernard Shaw argued that the Jack the Ripper murders helped to galvanize people to actually take action in the East End and uh, improve conditions.
2: So there was always a positive side to what are pretty horrendous killings.
3: There were some positive things that that came about. I mean, the East End was still, you know, in the early 20th century, there was still very severe destitution to be found in the East End and in other parts of London. But it did bring a focus, I think, especially after the creation of the London County Council. It did focus people's minds to actually carry out major transformation of some of the quarters of London. So it did help to sort of galvanize change. There's one uh, quite interesting comment I found, which was of uh, the Salvation Army night shelter in in Whitechapel. And there was a report of um, one of the women in the night refuge crying out in the middle of the night saying, thank God for Jack the Ripper, you know, that he'd actually, if it hadn't been for him, there wouldn't have been this night refuge for us so I think the murders did actually help to improve conditions to a certain extent in the East End. It was a contributing factor and a very important contributing factor in in certain
4: instances.
1: Jack the Ripper in the East End is on at London's Museum in Docklands from the 15th of May to the 2nd of November. Now, next up, Sue Wingrove has been talking to historian Ruth Goodman about her latest project, which is to live on a Victorian farm for an upcoming BBC TV series. Let's hear from Ruth now.
5: Hello, Ruth. Hello. Hello. Ruth is a social and domestic historian who works with museums, historic houses, theatre and TV, exploring the day-to-day lives of the past. Her recent TV work includes the series Tales from the Green Valley and A Tudor Feast, which were both aired on BBC Two. So, Ruth, you were on Tales from the Green Valley. Mm -hmm. Basically, you and some other historians and archaeologists recreated farm life from the age of the Stuarts. This time you're back on a farm, but it's, uh, it's the Victorian period. What's yeah. happening?
6: <laughs> it is pretty different, actually. My background has always been in the earlier period, but I'm really enjoying it. It's been so interesting to carry those sorts of ideas about living and daily life forward through the centuries. You know, so many practical skills are the same. So many other things are so different, and that's been quite exciting. We're up in Shropshire this time, right? Um, and it's very beautiful. Oh, it? <laughs> actually, the instant the sun peeps out from a cloud, you sort of find yourself stopping and go, oh, isn't it lovely?
5: So last time it was all sort of wattle and daub and things made out of willow and pots. Mm-hmm. and what is it, red brick and stuff this
6: time? That area of the country, it's less red brick, more stone, but it's so different, enamel pots, and the, the huge, biggest difference as far as I'm concerned is the change in fuel, you know, changing over from a wood economy to a coal economy. It oh it just impacts on everything.
5: What kind of lighting? You wouldn't be on um, oil, you wouldn't lamps. oil
6: lamps. Yeah right. we're only on oil right. lamps. Which are okay. You can't really see to do anything intricate by them.
5: Do you have running water at all or no no, no, no running no, water?
6: I'm still carrying water in buckets.
5: Quite hard work I should imagine. It is
6: hard work. Yeah. I boy do you ration how much water you use when you have to carry every drop. You think about how you use it. If, for example, I'm washing clothes, you know, I bring the water in and I use it first as sort of my cleanest rinse. And right. then I use it to become my soap-suddy water. And then, then I use it to become my rinsing off the absolute phallus at the beginning of the process water. Right. Which sounds sort of backwards, but you get sort of three uses out of the same load of water before you chuck it away. Okay. Just so that I use less, carry right. less.
5: You're basically sort of mistress of the, of the house, are you? Mm-hmm. Do you have to sort of milk cows or anything like that, or yep.
6: you do? Yeah, it's, it's a farm, and therefore, you know, the, the job's sort of moving in and out. And although there is a sort of a male role and a female role, that's a bit of a movable feast. You know, they have to be flexible. Yes. If you're working on a small farm, everybody has to muck in at various points. We've got cows, we've got sheep, we've got pigs, we've got poultry.
1: Gosh. Um, and a
6: woman usually did most of the milking and most of the poultry keeping on a small farm.
5: Right. Um,
6: And the men did most of the horses and most of the sheep. But, you know, there are times when we have to cross over and help each other out.
5: So who else is there with you?
6: Alex and Peter, who worked with me on both Tales of the Green Valley and Tudor Feast, are both working with me on this one as well.
5: So you started in September. We started Um, in
6: September, yeah. And we're running the full year through until the end of August, from harvest to harvest.
5: Starting at the end of the season, in a way...
6: Yes, I suppose so. I mean, you're starting with last year's produce, aren't yes, you? Yes, yes. But it is also the beginning. It's the moment when you start ploughing the land, start the preparation for next year's you know, harvest, really. You've got to get the land in the, in the field, you've got to get the land in the garden, you've got to get your animals in a fit state to get them through the winter. It, it, oh. it, it, from an agricultural point of view, it is very much a, a sort of an end of one, start of the new
5: and did they at least let you start with um, uh, your stock cupboard full of
1: (laughs) served food we
6: (laughs) We started with a farm in a terrible state not really fully workable so the first month or so had to put a huge amount of work into renovation no plaster on the walls Um, the stairs weren't safe so that was a really big thing to sort of try and get the basics up and running and, and we're still having to do bits of jobs like that as we go along um, at the moment the boys are selecting tree to sell because I want to make some fence posts they've just finished building a pigsty um, our pigs are, are in but we want them to have a bigger run around area in the main yard and we uh-huh. also want to be able to let the cows out of the cow shed into the main yard for a bit of fresh air every day so we're busily fencing that up at the moment
5: After a year, it'll probably be perfect. You won't want to go home.
6: (laughs) Have to hand over this nice finished working farm to somebody else. They say farming is a long-term
5: business, isn't it? Yeah,
6: landowners and tenants. It's a different business. You know, most people who are actually farming were tenant farmers. And you took the lease for quite a short time, often only the year. And then there was a choice whether you stayed or whether you moved on. So there was a bit more movement, perhaps, than people might expect. Um, Many of the rental agreements were really quite complicated because of this, because they had to set out exactly what you were responsible for. You know, and the landlord would be responsible for some aspects and, and the tenant for others. But it had to be really laid down in how much fertiliser was used or not used and things like that. So that if a tenant moves on, you know, he doesn't just rake the land for a year and goes Yes, He has to leave it in good heart for the next tenant.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com historyextra History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed.
5: Now, spring will be upon us. What are, what are mm-hmm. you up to in spring? What are the main things there?
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really animals, and, and animal husbandry is, is really looming large. We have a pig who's really first to piglets. Our, oh. our sheep are, are clo- you know getting closer to lambing, and you know one of our cows is in calf. Uh, hopefully it will go fairly straightforward. Yes. Also got to get um, my garden sorted out okay all
5: right well will you come back next month and tell us all about that yes okay all right well ruth thanks very much for talking to us thank you and good luck with everything and um i'm i'm longing to hear about all the little (laughs) baby animals thanks (laughs) all right thanks very much Ruth. cheerio bye-bye
1: The Victorian Farm will be on TV later this year, and we'll be coming back to talk to Ruth uh, in a future podcast. But now, Sue, let's have a chat about the latest history books that have been published this month. What's the, uh, what's the, the big book that we've been reviewing this month?
5: Okay, well, our selection of books ranges from 1960 cinema to Mughal, India, to the 1549 rebellions to renaissance vendettas and finally to rome which is the uh, lead review this month rome empire of the eagles by neil faulkner this book sets itself the daunting task of telling the entire story of the rise and fall of the roman empire in one medium-sized volume now In this period, Rome goes from a collection of thatched wattle and daub huts to a city of soaring marble cathedrals, and that's not even mentioning the Empire, which, of course, uh, grew hugely over that period. Our reviewer, Peter Heather, who's a lecturer at Oxford, was impressed with this book. He admired its uh, skill. He was aware that the that the danger was that you could you know, not really say much in just 300 pages to talk about the whole Roman Empire, but um, he says Faulkner pulls it off with aplomb, Um, and does a wonderful job. Faulkner himself doesn't actually like the Romans very much and he wants us to know them as the most bloodthirsty conquerors this corner of the globe has ever seen. Um, And he says that the whole empire was built on predation. He talks of the inner social tension of the community which was smoothed over by military um, actions. But the whole empire really was built on prisoners, slaves and bloodshed. So it sounds like it's well worth reading.
1: Yeah, that appears to be a provocative read. Um, Equally provocative, I imagine, is a book on Britain's lost cities.
5: Yes, now, um, this is by Gavin Stamp and uh, was reviewed by Tristram Hunt. Basically, the theme of the book is how really the the scene was set for the post-war decimation of um, Europe's great urban um, civilisations after the Second World War. Really the 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 planners and architects of the um, latter half of the 20th century did more to destroy Britain's Victorian infrastructure than did the Luftwaffe in the Second World War and it's rather a sad tale Um, after the air raids buildings were you know pulled down that could well have been repaired uh, and Gavin really doesn't have uh, much praise for um for our for our planners. Basically he says behind all this was a sense of shame about the industrial past, a visceral and blinkered reject- rejection of the dark but substantial legacy of the Victorians, fueled in part by a crude socialist vision that could amount to little more than civic self-hatred and which resulted in relentless destruction. It's a sad story, and among the stunning pictures of long-lost Victorian markets, Pugetian houses, hotels and stations, each reader will find their own sadness, says Tristram Hunt. And certainly when we had a look at the book here in Bristol, it was heartbreaking, really, to look at the beautiful medieval buildings that had been torn down to create Bristol's Broadmead shopping centre, and I think every reader will indeed find their own sadness here.
1: Okay, and what can you tell me about disease?
5: I can tell you quite a lot about disease. Um, I'll be brief. And I can show you some lovely pictures as well, because they appeared in a book by Mary Dobson, um, who's an expert in the history of infectious, infectious diseases. And it's a, it's a book for the general reader, so it's a great book. Its theme is how, from earliest times, disease has been a major influence on the history of humanity, indeed far greater than that of war, famine or natural disasters. It's rather a lovely book. It's got some lovely illustrations, contemporary illustrations. Um, and for each disease, it talks about the relationship between the condition and the environment. Um, it tells you a little bit about its social context and some of the cures that have been attempted over the um, ages. Uh, there's a lovely quote about syphilis, how one night with Venus um, cost a lifetime with Mercury, and that refers to the rather nasty uh, so-called cure
1: for that disease. Very droll. <laughs>
5: um, but that's a, that's a that's a super little book.
1: Yep, OK, and a super little book you've been reading, Rob?
5: Well, it's not that little, but it is a super book,
2: and that's Young Stalin by Simon spagmont now, his last book, which lots of people read, was Stalin in the Court of the Red Tsar, which looks at Stalin's period in power. This book takes a story, kind of a prequel. He's done a bit of a George Lucas here, and he's gone back in time, and he looks at Stalin until the revolution. And basically, you kind of see this, this former, well, future world leader, basically acting like a gangster, running around, killing people, bribing people, and getting his fair share of women as well. So it's quite an entertaining read, but also quite an interesting look at kind of gestation of a monster.
1: Now, aside from reading about Stalin, you also managed to find time to invite Professor Paul Cartledge into the time machine this month. Paul is Professor of Greek History at Cambridge, so I assume he wants to take us back to classical Greece, is that right?
2: You'd be right, yes. He wants to go all the way back to 430 BCE, which I think is the furthest our time machine has got to so far, but it made it, it made it okay, and he wants to talk to some Greek thinkers about Athenian democracy.
1: Splendid. Well, let's uh, let's go back in the time machine right now. What year would you like to set
2: the time machine for?
4: 430 BC or BCE, as we quite often now say before the common era, but 430, 430. And
2: why do you want to go back to 430 BCE?
4: Two things immediately. This was the year in which Sophocles' most famous tragedy, Oedipus the King, was first performed and indeed was only performed because tragedians wrote for one-off performances, strange though that may seem to us. and secondly, because that was the year of the great plague which hit Athens. And I think it's not coincidental that Sophocles' tragedy starts with the great plague affecting Thebes in myth, but nevertheless, Athenians would have made the connection.
2: Who do you want to meet in Athens?
4: I want to meet a number of intellectuals and cultural leaders who still have an impact today. So on the purely theoretical side, Protagoras, who comes from North Greece and he comes to Athens as a migrant teacher and he sets up and says uh, and advertises uh, his wares, as it were, that if anybody who wishes to learn about what virtue is in practical political terms, come and uh, learn from me and i want to have him talk with herodotus who is the first historian the world's in a way first historian certainly the first western historian who though he's writing about an earlier war is very influenced by the fact that the the greek world is once again plunged into a war but this time it's a civil war in a sense it's between greeks not greeks against um, non-greeks against persians so i want him there And I want Sophocles there, the playwright, for the reason given before the Oedipus, the king, play that particular year. And Pericles, as the practical politician, an intellectual, uh, an aristocrat by birth, but a democrat by ideology, who would certainly be able to hold his own when discussing the issue that strikes me as the most important, is how should one behave politically, especially in a democracy?
2: So this is a time when Athenian democracy is in a state of flux, perhaps?
4: Is it a crossroads? It's in a state of flux, not so much yet because it's under great threat, but because it has got itself involved. The Athenian demos has voted, the people have voted to go to war with Sparta, and the war's not going utterly brilliantly. And the whole issue of who is competent to run, uh, by a Greek standard, a very large city, because... Though um, Athens, by our standards, is tiny, let's say 300,000 people altogether, by Greek standards, that made it uh, easily the biggest in terms of um, population. And there were perhaps as many as 50,000 adult male citizens who all had a vote. And so they had taken the decision they were responsible. They're the ones, though, who get very upset and angry, and they take it out on Pericles, for example, in that very year, they disregard his advice to them. It doesn't work out very well what they do. So in that sense, you're right, that there is a sort of crisis, but it's not an issue of who should rule in the sense that about 20 years later, there's actually a coup against the democracy by right-wing oligarchs. At this stage, the democracy is pretty stable and secure.
2: So what is it that these intellectual people that you want to meet, what will they be discussing?
4: What they'll be discussing is um, the issue of partly democracy, in other words, democracy is the extreme version of self-government. The Greeks, by and large, um, were of the view that it was better for some definition of the citizens collectively to rule themselves rather than to be ruled by a sole ruler from the outside. In other words, they contrasted themselves most particularly with the Persian Empire, which had an emperor who was um, all-powerful, so they thought that the defects of that system were that such a person um, literally might put himself above the laws, and Greeks were all pretty hot on the rule of law, and in particular that that a king, a sole ruler, was non-responsible, might turn into an autocrat, or as they called it, a tyrant, and so all those things are bad. And yet, um, the Athenians in particular, but other Greeks too, were aware that the line between self-government and tyranny was not always that thick. That in other words, if things started to go wrong, a strong man might put himself forward and say, look, we're in a mess, you need me, I'm your spiritual salvation, I'm your practical solution go for me, and then you go over from um, self-government to being autocratically ruled from the outside. And this indeed happened in, interestingly, Syracuse. One has to remember that the Greek world at this time is a huge entity stretching from what's now Spain to what's now Georgia in the east end of the Black Sea. There were about a thousand Greek communities. Well, another one of these was big and was a democracy, and it's Syracuse. Well, at the end of the 5th century, so about a generation after my date, that went over to being a tyranny. So the line between self-government, democracy and tyranny was not all that thick.
2: And the people that you'd like to meet, what did they have differing views on this, or they brought in agreement?
4: It's very interesting. It's very hard to get at the views of, um, I've got my four people, I've got my Herodotus, my Protagoras, my Pericles, my Sophocles. Now, Sophocles, one assumes, was a Democrat. One doesn't have any explicit statement by him in his own voice, to that effect, because, of course, he's a playwright. So um, one knows what Tom Stoppard's views are, because you can interview him but we can't interview Sophocles. we just have his plays. We assume he's a Democrat because he lives in Athens, he holds office in Athens, he's actually a general, he's a, a financial official, all sorts of things. Pelicles is another Athenian. We know he's a Democrat because he actually puts himself forward as a democratic leader. He believes the people should decide and he proposes policies to them which they um, adopt or they don't adopt. The other two, Protagoras, Almost certainly, I would be prepared to bet, was uh, an ideological Democrat. One can't absolutely pin him down on that. But um, we know sufficient about his views, unfortunately, mainly through other people, such as Plato, to know that he thought the ordinary people had sufficient judgment, sufficient virtue to be able to know what they should do and to be capable of putting that into effect in practical political terms. Herodotus is quite interesting. He clearly was not keen on kings. In other words, he's a republican. But some of the things he says about democracy, for example, it's easier to fool 30,000 people than it is to fool one man, he uses That in one particular case, suggests that he wasn't absolutely wildly in favor of extreme democracy. On the other hand, he does write things which are very pro-democratic, which say before the Athenians had democracy, they were under tyrannies and they weren't very successful. Then suddenly they get democracy and they become wildly successful. So, you know, it seems that he was, um, at any rate, quite pro-democracy.
2: So it sounds like they would have probably been in favour of democracy as a, as a group compared to any other form of government.
4: Absolutely, and remembering in ancient Greek terms, I mean, it's a very odd fact. We're all Democrats today, but... Once upon a time, and that's not very long ago, 19th century, early 19th century, democracy was thought to be the worst possible regime because it's a regime of ignorant, stupid, ill-educated people who are ruling over the minority, who are intelligent, well-educated, and so on and so forth, and they make bad decisions, and really one must be very careful not to give power to the people. Well, what we invented was a form of... um, distanced, um, what we call representative democracy, that is, we elect, we the people, uh, elect people to govern for us, and in fact, instead of us, not just on our behalf, but they actually rule instead. Well, that has problems, I would say. For example, were we allowed to vote on whether we should go to war uh, in Iraq in 2003? We weren't, because we don't have a direct democracy. But go back to Athens in the 4.30. They, every day, could, in principle pull themselves together, have an assembly meeting, and decide to change the policy that the state is currently practicing. I mean, that is the most extreme form of direct democracy. It's sometimes called government by mass meeting. And it has huge risks. One of them is, of course, to make judgment under extreme emotion, that you don't reason, you don't stand back, you don't stay cool. You, In the heat of the moment, you rush in, something like that. The other one is you don't know enough, that not enough ordinary people have a sense. E.g. in Iraq today, there's a problem, you know, how much really does any ordinary individual know about the situation on the ground? Well, you can multiply that many times in the ancient world. They didn't have mass communications media. And ancient democracy is a very exciting thing, but very different from anything we've got today.
1: You can read more about Paul's trip back to classical Greece in the current issue of the magazine and there is of course much more in the mag that we haven't been able to feature in the podcast you'll find features on Frederick the Great, London's 1948 Olympics, history of Tibet's troubles and the story of Volker Bernadotte the Swedish diplomat who died trying to break a peace in the Middle East now you can find out more on all of this at our website which is www.bbchistorymagazine.com and indeed have a chat about historical matters on our forums which are at www www.bbchistoryforum.com So that's it for this month. Remember that BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60. Uh, as I said, the May issue is on sale in the shops from Tuesday, the 29th of April. Or you can subscribe. UK podcast listeners can do that today from just £16.20 every six issues, which is a 25% saving on the cover price. To take advantage of this, order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, quoting pod07. Alternatively, call our hotline on 0844 844 0250. So thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in again next month.